freaking So I should have started the episode of saying, yo, this is Tech Savvy Diva and this right. is Tech Savvy Diva. <laughs> You're listening to the Snob OS podcast, the podcast for Apple snobs. Yo, this is Terrence Gaines, a.k.a. Brother Tech. And this is Nika Monford, a.k.a. Tech Savvy Diva. And as a result of some uh, technical difficulties uh, before the show, we are back <laughs> with another <laughs> episode of the Snob OS Show, the show for Apple Snobs, where we talk all things Apple and then some. I think it's the, the holidays are starting to catch us. I think our equipment uh, senses the fact that it may be some downtime coming, so it's mm-hmm. kind of preparing itself. But nevertheless, we are back with uh, episode 150. So again, like I said, we want to thank all those people for hanging there with us, especially our Patreon supporters who was watching us fumble around for the past 20 minutes on the live show. So if you want to be a part of that, uh, you want to get some inside baseball on how we run things. You definitely got it if you were a Patreon of this past episode. But if you want to get in on that, definitely uh, go to SnobOS uh, cast at patreon.com, patreon.com forward slash SnobOS cast. So you can get in on the, uh, the, the behind the scenes of Snob OS. So, and for having those said all, who may be watching it before we head in, you may think you're seeing two tech executives, but there's only one of us. <laughs> your, your, your name. Oh, my name. Heck, on it. <laughs> Can't get it together. So we're coming up on Thanksgiving, so I think I think everything is like you know what the brains are starting to shut down into holiday mode and say. So I should have started the episode saying, "Yo, (laughs) this is Tech Savvy Diva, and this is Tech Savvy Diva." (laughs) All right, but I think I got it uh, switched, changed now. So yeah, so I think we are good to go. So we're gonna start this episode uh, with a lowdown where we talk all things Apple. Uh, a couple of things happened this week that I thought were pretty interesting. So the first one was um, I am a X iPhone repair guy. I actually used to make money um, fixing iPhones at the time. It was the iPhone six, six S seven, the seven, the, the, the seven, the seven plus the eights, the nine, not even, they didn't have a nine and the iPhone 10. I started to get out of the game because fixing phones got mad complicated. I say around the iPhone 10 is when they started to get mad complicated. They used, they introduced the um, waterproof and the water, not waterproof, water resistance with introducing water resistance had a whole nother complication of opening and resealing um, iPhones touch ID complicated things to where not only if somebody broke the screen, not only did you have to replace the screen, but you had to make sure you kept the original home button because if you used another home button, like, or somebody damaged your home button or you messed up that home button, they couldn't use touch ID. So fast forward to, you know, now I pretty much got out of the game because <laughs> iPhones got mad complicated to actually repair, whether it be, fixing a screen, whether it be fixing a camera or a speaker or changing a battery. I was just like, you know what? <laughs> I like iPhones, but them pieces, them screws were super tiny and it just got more complicated. So um, I don't know if that was Apple's reason as to why they kind of made it complicated because they didn't want people to mess up the devices or some security success concerns, whatever the case may be, Apple kind of, kind of, kind of shut people down unless you were a authorized Apple trained authorized re- uh, repair guy. And I didn't, I wasn't going through all that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hood dude, <laughs> but <laughs> I wasn't, <laughs> I would, I wouldn't have no certifications and I wasn't working in no authorized repair shop either. So I was like, yeah, you know what? That was fun. I made a little change. Now <laughs> I'm, I'm going to move on to something else. Right. So uh, fast forward to today, Apple has kind of been fighting the whole, you know, uh, right to repair 
you give us the phones, we'll fix them or we'll give them to our authorized people. Other than that, leave them alone. So with the iPhone 13, they took it a step further and said, not only do we want you to leave the thing alone, but if you replace the screen and it didn't come through an authorized, it didn't come through Apple or through an authorized uh, repair per- people that Apple kind of vetted, you know, your face ID would not work if you replace that screen. So uh, people got upset. Uh, and I guess Apple decided to change their mind because now with a software update, I think it was 15.1.1 that just came out today. I don't know, but I don't know. They don't specifically say what update, but they said Apple will release a software update that doesn't require you to transfer the microcontroller to keep the face ID working after a screen swap. So basically what Apple did was embedded in the actual screen of the iPhone, they had a chip that matched that screen to that phone. So if you took that screen off, put on a third party screen and didn't include that microcontroller chip, your face ID would not work. So Apple said, you know what? We'll ease We're up. We're doing too much. Yeah. <laughs> we'll ease up and we will uh, release a software update to where you can actually take it to a third party repair shop or do it yourself. If you buy the screen, you get the parts, you get the tool, the kit, whatever the case may be, and you replace that screen, your face ID will actually work. So um, again, that kind of does a 180 because Apple has been a staunch uh, opponent to right to repair. Basically what right to repair is um, there's a comp- there's a company specifically iFixit Uh, They're like the main proponent of right to repair to where they say, if you spend all this money to buy all these products, you should be able to do with them what you want to do on your own without having to send it back, without having to use some authorized repair or service or whatever the case may be. If I buy an iPhone and I want to change the color of the screen or I want to change the the color of the back or I want to you know fix it, if it's broke, if I want to fix it, I should have the right to do that. So. Companies like uh, iFixit have been, you know, kind of on Apple's head (laughs) about doing that. So this is almost like Apple kind of saying, all right, y'all want to fix your stuff? (laughs) Go ahead. So, you know, that was like the first little piece of news uh, that I wanted to to share. And I guess I'm going to get your opinion. You know, what do you think is uh, Apple's thought process behind easing up and letting users repair their screens? I think honestly, I think COVID has some something to do with this because Apple did shut down for a amount of time. They're just ramping back up and they probably, I don't, I can't say for certain that, you know, they saw numbers going down on people who are buying devices, but just in this age that we're in, they knew that they weren't able to really provide the type of service that people needed because they were shut down. And so it's one of the things is, do we lose market share and people buying our products or do we open it up and let, you know, these other uh, folks fix them as well? Because really, when you look at the bottom line, is it really going to take that much away from us if right. we go with these people? Because most of the time it's already embedded in people that nobody can fix Apple devices like Apple can. Right. There are going to be some people that still go the route of, let me go to someone else other than Apple because Apple is so expensive. But the market share of people who purchase Apple products wants Apple to fix them. Mm-hmm. So I think they maybe have the realization that, you know what, we're causing more harm because we're getting this negative publicity, this negative press. People are kind of talking about us, this, that, and that. And it's really not going to affect our bottom line. So why not offer some goodwill to these other companies and, you know, make it seem like we're we're being less rigid and more flexible when in actuality it's probably not going to affect us that much. Right, right. And you, you made a good point. Uh, the people who trust Apple are, con- are going to continue to trust Apple, especially people who buy Apple Care. If I buy a phone and then I buy Apple Care, you know, I'm going to get my money's worth. And I'm going to send it back to Apple because I paid for this Apple care for y'all to either replace a screen or in most cases, they'll just give you a new phone. Uh, most people know if you go to Apple with a sob story, you know, and you, you kind of 
you kind of play up to not not victim, but if you kind of go to Apple and say, That's "Hey, sad story." Yeah, yeah. Most yeah. cases, they'll just give you a new phone anyway, because again, they don't want to be bothered with trying to go through that. But you know, like I said, if you do the worst, you're getting it fixed by Apple and some of these third party companies. You know, they are not. You know, most of them are good. Uh, most of them are less less expensive than sending your device to Apple. But there are some shysty ones out there that will jack your phone up. Yep. And then that'll void your warranty. And then you, after that, you try to go to Apple and say, hey, can you fix my phone? And Apple's like, yo, nah. who else mess with this phone? <laughs> nah. <laughs> we because mess if with something it no else more. breaks that they broke that you didn't know until we got it and started working on it, then you're going to expect us to fully replace it when we didn't break it. Right. Right. So, yeah. So there's going to be those people, but most people, like like you mentioned, are going to stick with Apple. But this kind of goes right into the next story that I got that, you know, for those people who are willing to fix their own screens, uh, fix, change the battery, change the camera, Apple has taken it even a step further and said, not only are we going to make it so you can fix your own device, we're actually going to sell you the parts so you can fix your own screen, change the battery, fix the camera, change the volume, fix the volume buttons, fix the power button, fix the speaker, replace the speaker, do whatever you need to do. Uh, so Apple's calling this program self-service repair. It'll launch early next year. They don't have an exact date. They just say early next year. And Apple is actually going to sell parts and actual kits to individuals. So say for instance, your screen cracks, instead of you going to, and I, 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 I'm burying the lead a little bit, but I fix it is a major player when it comes to regular people going to them to buy the parts to fix their iPhones, right? Uh, I fix it was a major proponent of their right to repair because they sell the parts. So they right. have a bias <laughs> when it comes they have to a vested interest in this. Right. When it comes to force or uh, convincing Apple that they need to ease up and let third parties or let regular people fix their devices. Well, Apple's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to let people fix their own devices. But what we're going to do is we're going to now compete <laughs> with an iFixit and Apple is actually going to sell kits and parts so Apple customers, people with Apple devices can actually fix their own uh, units and fix their own kits, which puts them in direct competition with iFixit, companies like iFixit. So I'll give you a little bit more information. Uh, they're going to start with the iPhone 12 and iPhone 13. So all of the devices, you know, I think Apple still supports the iPhone 7 the 8, the 10, the 10 R's, 11, 12, and 13, right? So only the 12 and the 13s at, at the beginning. And then only, and then they'll expand to MacBooks with the M1 chip. So the M1 MacBook Air, the M1 MacBook Pro from last year, and then the newer ones that just came out. All of those probably in 2022 are going to be uh, eligible to, uh, for Apple to, so you could buy kits from Apple to actually uh, repair them. So I I kind of told you where I, why I think Apple did this, but I guess I'm going to get your opinion on why do you think Apple has decided to say, all right, not only will we make it easier for you to fix your own parts, uh, your own devices, we're going to sell you the parts and the kit so you can do it yourself. I think it's pretty much similar to what I said before in the previous story. Um, they realize that they aren't going to really lose anything by offering this. And if anything, I think I fix it in all the other right to fix your own phone folks. They may have talked themselves into some competition. Right. So before they were the only one who was selling the parts. Now uh -huh. Apple is in the game selling the parts. And who do you think people are going to trust to sell them parts? They're likely going to go to Apple and get the official Apple parts, even though I'm sure iFixit parts are just as, you know, they they work the same, but you can now buy the Apple branded parts directly from Apple. So again, Apple saying, we're really not going to lose a lot of market share if we give people the 
option to go to these third party people. But we're also going to kick it up a notch and say, yeah, we're going to sell them too. So we can get some of our money back. So we won't lose as much as people going outside. So I think I fixed it and, and everybody else may have talked themselves into some competition. Yeah, no, Apple. absolutely. Now to read into the story a little bit, it says Apple plans to sell more than 200 individual parts and tools the company will also offer repair manuals that customers can review before buying the parts, which is pretty much uh, I fix its claim to fame is they have mm-hmm. repair manuals for pretty much any gadget out there. I know I go to iFixit all of the time when I was fixing iPhones and even fast forward to now, you know, I think my, my wife, she had an iPhone 10 R she cracked the back completely. <laughs> I went to iFixit. And got the rear, the, the whole rear for her iPhone via iFixit. I still have some of their kits around here. I don't have any sitting right here, but I've got iFixit branded repair kits, repair parts, screwdrivers, the whole nine. And now <laughs> that Apple has on a platter. Right, right. More likely, I'm going to feel more comfortable going to Apple to get an iPhone screen because I know it's coming from Apple versus going to iFixit because I don't know what kits they're going to have. Um, according to uh, this story, I wanted to find it where, um, um, let me see if, let me see if this is it. Uh, Elizabeth Chamberlain, iFixit's director of sustainability. Uh, Chamberlain notes that this isn't the open source repair revolution we've sought through our fight for right to repair because it appears to still support restrictions that requires parts to be bought straight from Apple. So um, what Apple's saying here in, you know, to rephrase, it's like, all right, we're going to sell these kits specifically to our consumers. What we may or may not do is sell these kits to repair centers like iFixit. So again, like you mentioned, uh, I, I fix it as definitely, and some of these other ones have definitely talked their way into some competition because like we mentioned before, uh, most people, um, may feel more comfortable going to Apple for, uh, branded authentic parts versus, you know, whatever, you know, I'm pretty sure I fix it has some good products, but if I had to choose between whatever I fix is selling and what Apple's selling, I may spend the extra mu- bucks if it costs more to know I'm getting a quality screen because again, and knowing Apple, they'll probably keep it around the same type of price point. It might be a little bit more, but probably not enough to cause any significant difference. And if you're willing to go out on the limb and fix it yourself, you're like, you know what, let me make sure I got the official part because I'm already doing this myself. So I, you know, it, it takes some of the air out of it. If I'm confident that this comes from Apple and I know that this part will work, on my device. And if something mm-hmm. goes wrong, it's probably user error, not necessarily right. part error. Right. Now, Apple does say they're going to sell, according to the story from The Verge, uh, Apple is going to sell genuine parts to third-party repair shops. But again, um, in the you beginning... Have to buy, Apple still gets that money, though, if you happen to buy Apple genuine... You don't have to buy Apple genuine parts. And mm-hmm. that's where this Elizabeth Chamberlain, she's like, you know, this is not what they thought they were going to get. But you want it to be able to fix Apple phones. You can now fix Apple phones. You just now have the competition of Apple branded parts versus your branded parts mm-hmm. and manuals for people to fix them themselves. So they don't need you. So be careful what you wish for. Girl. I mean, you, <laughs> this is, you wanted this. So they're giving it to you, just not the way you want it. And that's not their problem. That's your problem. Well, more importantly, Apple is giving it to the consumers, not necessarily mm. to iFixit. <laughs> but iFixit can buy now buy the Apple branded parts too. But it kind of really defeats the purpose of, you know, what they're doing. And that's what she's saying. You know, the restrictions are that the parts have to be bought from Apple. No, they don't. No one says that the parts have to be bought from Apple. They've been buying your parts and putting them on their phones, and it's been fine. Now you just have the added competition of Apple products, and you don't like it. But, right. I mean... <laughs> Be careful you what you wish for. Yeah, you got what you wanted. <laughs> all right, all right. So we'll see uh, what happens with that. I'll definitely be following that close to see, especially when this thing launches. 
you know, how successful Apple is, uh, more specifically, you know, how, how successful, uh, individuals are repairing using Apple's genuine parts, you know, how easy it is, you know, cause that's going to be the main thing. Again, that's one of the reasons why I got out of it. I mean, regardless of how, where you get the parts from, I mean, these screws are tiny. tiny. If you don't have the magnetic tools, if you, you don't, if you lose one in the carpet, forget it. Forget it. it. <laughs> forget it. So, you know, hats off to you. If you try to do it, you know, that should be a right. You do. They, they do have a point. You should have every right to do whatever you want to do with your devices after you buy them. But again, be careful what you wish for, though. Once you get it and you sitting there with a table full of parts that you don't you didn't forgot what order you took them out. And now you're trying to figure out what screw goes in this hole because all the screws are not universal. They got different links. They got different uh, holes. They got different mm -hmm. sockets, wrenches to use. It is a nightmare, especially if you lose one or forget what you were doing or forget what order that you put them in. So that's why I got out the game and I'm technologically savvy. So I can imagine some regular old person deciding, yo, uh, yeah, sure. I'm gonna fix it. Get on the table, take your phone apart and be like, Oh crap. <laughs> right. I think what this is going to expose is a lot of people who think they are super savvy and I can fix and I can build anything. I think a lot of people are about to get humbled. Right. And you probably can, but again, it ain't it's easy. It's not going to be easy. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not simple, you know, especially when it comes to, and I'll just last point and I'll move on especially when it comes to the waterproof, there is a specific seal mm -hmm. that you have to put around the screen before you close it up. And then once you close it up, you can't be like, oh, I forgot something and open it back up. You just messed the seal up. So now you got to get a new one. And it's just, look, <laughs> I'm telling you. Pay for the it, convenience. <laughs> it feels good when you do it. Don't get me wrong. Every time I fix the phone, I'd be like, you know what? I did that. I slayed a dragon today. Right, right. But there have been times where some I fix something and the 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 person takes the phone and they be like, wait a minute, now my volume don't work. And then they come back and now I gotta take the phone apart again and figure out why. How did I go from fixing the screen and now I'm trying to figure out why the volume button don't work? It's mm -hmm. like, look, it, look, these are problems you that it. you're going to run into. <laughs> be careful when you ready to get, uh, get into these phones. So yeah. <laughs> All right, all right, moving. devices. Yeah, yeah, it's not easy. Uh, so yeah, moving right along. Uh, another issue, uh, or a, a, a Easter egg, uh, when it comes to the new MacBooks. Um, with the a lot of people use their MacBooks. They use them in clamshell mode, and what I mean by that is they'll connect it to a dock that has it connected to a monitor, it connects to the printer, it connects to the Ethernet, internet whatever the case may be, they connect it to the port, they close the lid of their MacBook and just use their external monitors. And then they have like a uh, Bluetooth mouse. They may have the magic mouse and they have the magic keyboard. Well, the newer magic magic keyboards have the touch ID in the actual keyboard to where if you authenticate who you are, if you save your passwords in iCloud, um, if you need to lock and unlock your Mac, you can use the um, the touch ID to get into your Mac. Also, if you want to pay for stuff, you know, if you go on a website and you buy something and they list Apple pay as one of the payment methods, you can use the touch ID on the external keyboard and actually make that purchase. Well, that only works if the MacBook is open. If you actually use it in clamshell mode and close it to use external displays, you cannot make a purchase with Apple Pay. Now you can unlock it with your thumb, with your thumbprint. You can enter passwords with your thumbprint. But this story that I'm reading in um, Mac Observer is if you have an M1 MacBook Pro or M1 MacBook Pro Max and you have that new magic keyboard and you close your Mac, you will not be able to make Apple Pay purchases. So I just wanted to do that PSA out there to where if you do close your Mac and you use like two or three external monitors and you've realized that you can't make payments using Apple pay, try to open your Mac and then use the touch ID on an external keyboard. It'll let you in then. So just a little heads up for that. Um, when with that, I think that's it for uh, the lowdown. 
Uh, we'll move right into second string where we talk all things tech in general. Um, last week, or I think a little week before, uh, um, YouTube has made a pretty major decision. Well, I don't think it's major, but some people may think it's major. Um, YouTube has decided to hide, not remove. They decided to hide the dislike button um, on YouTube videos. They've actually made it private. The dislike button will, um, the, um, well, let me read this. Let me read it. What it says is a part of the experiment. Viewers could still see and use the dislike button, but because the count was not visible to them, we YouTube found that they were less likely to target a video's dislike button to drive up the count. In short, our experiment data showed a reduction in dislike attacking behavior. We also heard directly from smaller creators and those just getting started that they are unfairly targeted by this behavior and our experiment confirmed that this does not occur at higher proportion on smaller channels. So basically what they've done is they've said, all right, the dislike button is there. If you watch a video and you don't like it, you can dislike the button, but you won't, when you look at a video, like if you're going to find a video to view, you won't see the count of how many people disliked this video, which according to YouTube, people were kind of abusing to actually uh, target people. Like if, you know, I don't know, somebody falls out of grace, you know, a popular YouTuber does something wrong, you know, they, whatever the case may be. A prime yeah. example of something recent. Um, I think we talked about um, Harry and Megan. Apparently she read her book um, on someone's YouTube because of course they don't have one mm-hmm. and people who don't like them Mm-hmm. We're going and pressing the like, dislike, dislike, dislike. And they were like, see, people don't like it. People don't like them. They're stupid. But mm-hmm. the the thing was the video count of how many people had watched it was like over 200,000. Mm-hmm. The dislikes were like maybe, say, 6,000, 6,500. Mm-hmm. And the likes were maybe 6,400. So it's people who knew that they didn't like them. They don't care what the video was. They were just going to go and keep pressing the dislike so they could highlight that and say, see, nobody likes them. So it kind of goes into the whole trend of the abuse that's online. If someone doesn't like you, they can mm-hmm. just go and dislike your video a bunch of times or, you know, have a, a com- campaign for people to just go and dislike it. And that way it appears as if whatever your video is about no one really likes it, regardless of how many likes you get or regardless of how many views you get. People just go and see that dislike and say, you know what? No one likes this person. No one likes this thing. So I think what YouTube is trying to do, along with some of the other social media platforms, is trying to reduce the amount of abuse and trolling and hate on social media by merely hiding the count so people can't use that as a tool to say, we hate this person and we're going to drive, you know, disengagement um, on their videos and on their posts. Right. Or just a, a flat out gauge the quality of the actual video. Of the actual content, right. Right. Without even looking at it, you know, without seeing a dislike button, I could see somebody who would otherwise say, eh, I ain't watching that versus to, oh, well, let me check it out. You know, mm-hmm. now again, uh, there were some people, there are a lot of people who, ah, oh, you know, I-, I can't get at a glance ratio of how uh, as a creator, there's a creator talking. Oh, I can't get an at a glance look at how well my video is doing. And I use that as data and metrics in order to adjust or in order to, you know, curate content based on what people like and what people don't like. Well, you can kind of still get that same you can t- get sort of that ratio. Analytics. It just right. One, one through analytics. And two, you can still get at a glance, like on average, let's just say your videos get 2,000 likes, right? And you put out a video and it only gets uh, 800 likes. Now, that don't necessarily equate to the difference is people disliking it, but you can still kind of gauge, okay, if I normally get 2,000 likes, watching it, yeah. Right. If I get 2,000 likes, you know, normally on average, and this video only gets 500, then maybe I need to do something different. It's the Mm -hmm. same type of gauge. You just have to change it. But again, you know, people, high-end creators, you know, just people in general who are used to thing being one way, find out that they have to kind of adjust 
And in pe- nobody wants, nobody likes change, right? <laughs> so I think a lot of people were just complaining or, you know, providing constructive feedback, air quotes, is because, again, this is going to change how they did things. And they They're going to have to do a little bit more work to find mm-hmm. out their metrics. Right, right, right. So this change uh, will gradually start rolling out. So this story is about a week old. So um, since last week, um, YouTube has started to roll out this change to where, you know, you may no longer see a dislike button on your favorite or most viewed or frequently watched uh, video. So we'll actually see what's the fallout from that. Again, in my opinion, you be at night. (laughs) It's probably nil. It's probably extremely minimal. Um, If you have subscribers, if you have your fair share of people who look at your content, that's likely not going to change because you can't see the dislikes anymore. Right, right. All right, moving right along. Uh, Instagram has made tipping available to more users. So previously, uh, when the feature first came out, uh, October uh, 2020, uh, only influencers and creators that Instagram had handpicked could actually enable badges that users could actually buy. And then, you know, it's like three, two or three or five dollars. They could buy these badges once they bought, bought those badges, the person who was the influencer that was going live could actually see their badge. And that would it signify to the uh, influencer that, hey, this person paid for this. That would uh, give them, set them aside from all the different mm-hmm. viewers, their questions. If a person tipped, their questions will kind of rise up to the front to where you actually were more visible. So the whole nine, right? So fast forward to uh, this week. Instagram announced that all eligible creators can apply to turn on the feature. Now, there are some um, uh, some quotas, for lack of a better term, that you have to to uh, qualify for. And let me find those right now. Let me see. It says uh, let me find them. Give me one second. Uh, Let me see here. It is. um, So going back, going back. It was the, the the badges were are between ninety nine cents and five hundred dollars. Oh, not five hundred dollars, five dollars. <laughs> but now everybody uh, can qualify. So basically, what you have to be is over the age of eighteen. Uh, you got to live in the U.S. For now, I'm assuming this is going to branch out to other countries. You got to have more than ten thousand followers. I think that cuts us out. <laughs> you have to have a creator or a business account, and you have to quote unquote pass and remain compliant with Instagram's partner monetization policies, content monetization policies, and community guidelines. So if you fit all of those qualifications, you can actually go live on Instagram, uh, have a little tip jar, for lack of a better term. If your viewers tip you, then that gives them extra you know, access, a little bit more visibility, so you can interact with them a little bit more. Uh, I guess my question to you is now, that, you know, social media, the TikToks, you know, specifically TikTok, you know, there are a lot of people making money, you know, doing TikToks. Is this Instagram trying to uh, catch up or is this, you know, what do you think this is a an attempt to do? This is, you know, Instagram is still owned by Facebook. You know, the people, there are some people saying, OK, well, you know, uh, they're trying to change the channel from all this heat that Facebook has been getting by letting their Instagrams, uh, their influencers make a little bit more money. You know, what do you think this, this, um, this new feature is in response to? I think it's catch up because Twitter has had tip jar for a while. Mm -hmm. They initially had some parameters around it. Now it's pretty much open to anybody. Um, You can get a tip jar, of course, TikTok, they're making plenty of money on there. So I think for Instagram to remain competitive and to keep people, on their site, they're like, okay, we're going to have to open this up some more. It's still pretty limited for the 10,000 follower um, count. That seems a little bit steep because I don't even think what, what is it, micro influencers, I think they're around like the 5,000 mm-hmm. range, I think. Mm-hmm. Who I think, you know, reading some, I was doing a little bit of research on the whole marketing aspect behind it. But people um, and advertisers, they're going more for the micro influencers mm-hmm. because those people, they one aren't their their followers are um, 
not authentic. Their followers are organic. Right. So they retain their followers. They may only have 5,000, but those 5,000 are loyal. And anytime they buy something or say something, right. they are, you know, involved. Whereas someone who has maybe 100,000, they a may. A bunch of bots, you know. Bots, yeah. You know, people just want to be in the number. Or just want to hate, hate follow, right. which right. I'll never understand. I'll never understand how you can not like somebody. Yeah. But follow them just to what? Comment Be and more engage. upset? <laughs> but the thing is, you're actually helping their numbers. People are nuts. But yeah, so back to the, you know, the whole point. I think, you know, they, they're going to have to, I think, ultimately drop this uh, requirement for 10,000 followers mm-hmm. for it to be attractive for some of your micro influencers who are out there making a ton of money. I follow a couple of people on Twitter who uh, that's their business is they help uh, micro influencers get partnerships and brand deals. And some of these micro influencers with 5,000, 6,000 followers, they're getting $25,000 brand deals. Mm-hmm. So it's like one of those things where if you really want to, uh, I guess, engage your content creators, you're going to have to probably drop that number down at least by half. Yeah. Well, dropping it by half won't even, <laughs> don't, won't even, no. won't even account to me because uh, I just looked I only got 1,500 followers on Instagram, so <laughs> I ain't even going to qualify for that. So, uh, and I, I have but, even less than that because I use social media for entertainment purposes only. I've gotten a little bit more engaged since we've been doing the show. Mm-hmm. So, um, But yeah, I, I don't have that many followers, and I really don't follow that many people either um, it, you know, for entertainment. But for people who use it as a business, mm-hmm. um, definitely, I think this is one of those things where yeah, they're going to have to make some adjustments to get the maximum use out of it and to keep people, content creators specifically, you know, using their their um, their platform. Right, right. Because that's what I think. I think, you know, Facebook or my bad, Meta, Meta. is still kind of concerned that, hey, we need to figure out how to get these young kids and keep these young kids. You know, what are the other platforms doing? TikTok, Twitter, you know, influencers are figuring out how to get paid off yeah. of those platforms. So it's like, all right, well, so kids, money, all right, <laughs> let them make more money. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. All right. All right. So the last story in second string is, uh, of course, this kind of comes right along the time of holiday shopping. We're probably going to start getting more packages delivered to our doorsteps. If you have a ring video doorbell, um, they now have a feature to let you, um, set up package alerts specifically for packages. So if you have a Ring Pro 2 or a video doorbell, I think it's the 2020 version, you can give your packages an extra measure of protection. Uh, Basically what it does is if it has any sort of, uh, if it detects like a package or a object uh, that is, I guess, outside of what it normally detects, you can get a specific alert, you know, outside of a person, you know, outside of any sort of motion detecting, it'll actually detect a actual package um, and then it'll give you alert specifically for that. So in order to use those package alerts, you'll first have to be a Ring Protect subscriber, which costs anywhere from $3 a month to $20 a month, uh, depending on whether you just want cloud storage or single video device or you're paying for professional monitoring for your security system. Uh, I think Google Nest also offers this feature. I think Arlo is a, uh, I guess, a competitor to uh, Ring Doorbell, but they offer uh, subscriptions as well. So you got to go through all that. It ain't free. You got to be a a monthly subscriber. But if you are, and especially around now, like I mentioned, if you're starting to get a bunch of packages and your neighborhood, I don't know, you know, our neighbor is pretty cool. Um, But there are some some neighborhoods out there where you got a lot of porch pirates to yeah. where they just will lurk in to see where these packages are and scoot them up. So if that is your concern and you do have a ring doorbell and you're paying a subscription, you can get that added alert to be able to know exactly <laughs> when Amazon, UPS, USPS, FedEx drops off that package so you can hurry up and scoop it up. <laughs> yeah. cool. Yep. All right. So that is it for uh, second string. We're going to move right into uh, for the culture. Um, I found this um, this startup. The name of the startup is called Stackwell. 
and I want to like the name because yeah. you'll figure it out in a minute, but it is a uh, fintech startup. Uh, founder and CEO is Trevor Rozier Bird. And basically what Stackwell is, is it a mobile app that provides stock market education and presents users with portfolios instead of picking individual stocks. And the reason why I thought that was so interesting because uh, Trevor uh, Rozier Bird and this uh, Stackwell mobile app is specifically targeted to African-Americans in hopes to get them to build wealth in order to close the racial wealth gap. Now, again, I can only speak for myself. Um, me and my wife, we do a pretty good job of investing, whether it be 401k, whether it be saving, and even like investing in the stock market. We're also getting into crypto, actually outside of just a couple hundred dollars here, a couple hundred dollars there. We're actually going to start including cryptocurrency as a um, a main vehicle in my family's investing. <laughs> but outside of me and my wife, <laughs> my family as a whole umbrella family tree, uh, we, they ain't with the invest in all that hot, you know, for whatever reason, whether it be they don't have the extra money or they don't think they have the extra money to invest or flat out they are unaware, uneducated, or even um, turned off or even um, suspicious. Because they can't wrap their mind around, is it fake money? Is it real money? But I don't have access to it, but it's a wallet, but it's not centralized. It's Yeah, it's a lot of questions that people have. Right. So basically, the reason why I like this fintech, is this startup, uh, Stackwell, is because it provides stock market education. And in addition to that, like I mentioned, it gets users portfolios. So... Most people feel like, all right, in order to invest in the stock market, I need to know about a company's financials. I need to know how much they make. I need to know how much they spend. Mm -hmm. I need to, to, to know their charts. I need to chart their stock market. I need to know when to buy high or when to buy low, when to sell high. I need to know all these forecasts and know all this information in order just to buy one, one share of an individual company. So what this uh, Stackwell does is instead of users picking individual stocks, again, this is new. This is a startup. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but my guess is based off of, you know, uh, questions that you answer, like how much money you have to invest, what are your goals, you know, uh, where, 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 you know, um, um, what's your lifestyle? What's your budget? Things. I'm pretty sure it'll ask those type mm -hmm. of questions. And then based off of those questions, it'll automatically present you with a portfolio mm -hmm. that you invest in the portfolio. And then the actual portfolio invests in stocks, bonds. It may do options. It may get into index funds, you know, things of that nature. But again, I thought this was really interesting because the founder, CEO, Trevor Rosier Bird, and I'll just uh, quote what he said, I created Stackwell to eliminate the racial wealth gap, wealth gap by empowering a new community of black investors. I've spent my career in the asset management industry and have been first and have seen firsthand how powerful the market can be as a tool for long term wealth creation through Stackwell. Our goal, our goal is to make building wealth a real possibility for more people in the black community. Again, like I said, that's one of the things that I'm interested in, you know, specifically from a, you know, uh, a building wealth perspective in the black community, because that's one of the things we lag behind yep. pretty much all other demographics, whether it be because the lack of education or because people have a understood and recognized and legitimate distrust when it comes to the financial system, because the financial system has not been the most uh, uh, open when it comes to dealing with black folks, whether it be the housing market, you know, whether it be investing Education. in general. Yeah. Right. I purpose, I, I, with my whole heart, believe the reason why a lot of people in general, but black folks specifically don't get into the stock market is because the people who are at currently in it have all this jargon have all these words and has all it's very these very intimidating. I think very, it exactly. that way on purpose right. to hope that certain 
types of people don't get in. Right. When they start to realize and someone, you know, breaks it down and uses, you know, terms that are easily understandable, which these folks could do anyway, but it's another form of gatekeeping, in my opinion. Right. They don't want the extra competition because let's be honest, a lot of times when black folks get into stuff that's been traditionally non-black, they get in and they kill it and mm-hmm. they don't want that kind of smoke. They don't want that kind of competition. So I think it's just a way of gatekeeping. And and, and with this particular um, startup, I actually just uh, signed up to be an early whatever bird thing because I want to mm-hmm. see, you know, really what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he might be my cousin because Rozier is my mom's main name. So I think we related. So I got to support okay. the family. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think once you lift the veil off of some of these things i think once the veil really starts to lift off crypto mm-hmm. um off of investing in general mm-hmm. i think people will be more likely and more willing to to jump on board if they can have someone to just explain it to them in layman's terms mm-hmm. and you don't feel like you have to have a harvard mba to understand some of the basics of of investing and to be honest a lot of how, particularly I can only speak from the Black experience because I'm Black, is we've traditionally done this type of in, investing or networking or, you know, group savings or, you know, things because we didn't have access before. We just didn't have the language that is associated with currently with the way that people handle finance, the way they handle investing, Wall Street, all these type of things. We've been doing it for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot like the whole recycling thing before it had fancy names. Black people have been doing that, co-opting, you know, family or group groups of family, you know, coming together, putting their money together, buying real estate, buying family mm-hmm. homes that kind of, you know, are multifamily spaces. So I just think once the veil is lifted off of that and it becomes less intimidating and with people like Trevor, um, you know, providing the educational aspect as well, I mm-hmm. think it will make people more willing to to risk and, and, and get on board. And once they get in there, they were like, oh, well, we're doing this before um, when we could have, you know, set ourselves up, you know, even more. So I think this is great. Right, right. And, you know, in addition to just being uneducated or unaware, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of people, a lot of black folks have uh, uh, created a distrust Hmm. for the financial media, financial markets, because they can remember a time to where they weren't allowed in a bank. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, they were, you know, discriminated against uh, when it came to buying a home. So, you know, those would be the last people who would invest in the stock market or who would invest in real estate because Mm -hmm. they have been pushed away. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, there's an actual amount of distrust that, you know, um, any black person can go open up a Robinhood account, a TD Ameritrade, a Fidelity account and invest, you know, but that distrust is there. And these companies really, you know, they, they do have some educational tools, but you know, it's not, it's, it's almost like, okay, well, Here's how you invest in a stock and then this is how you make your money and this is what you got to do versus, you know, those of us who have been shut out, um, we may have to break those barriers mm-hmm. in order to, you may have to hold their hand and say, look, let me help you, you know, in, on a let slower pace. Even more granular than right. what this step-by-step thing is because there's still a lot of questions and there's still a lot of jargon that I don't quite understand and this is supposed to be the dumbed down version. Right. It's intimidating to people. Right, right. And like I said, uh, these companies, you know, it takes time to build those type of customers. And these companies ain't got time. They Either they ain't got time or they don't want to spend they the time, time because their regular, their other customers, you know, they, they, they quote unquote get it, right? In addition to that, a lot of uh, Black folks' wealth is in their homes, well, as a result of the 2008, 2009 housing market crash and just how things are now, rising health care costs, uh, crushing student loan debt, there are people who can't buy homes and they are currently renting 
So that whole dynamic to where, again, like a lot of black folks is like the number one, their number one wealth building um, a vehicle has been their home. Well, if you're not, if you don't own a home and you're renting, okay, where's your, where's your wealth vehicle there? So, you know, this kind of comes at a good time because there are people who are now trying to figure out, okay, how I'm going, how am I going to build safety net, security net? And then how am I going to build wealth for myself and the future generations, my kids, my grandkids, my nephews, my nieces, grandbabies, things of that nature when I don't own a home, you know? So, yeah. And and a lot of these people are first generation Mm -hmm. trying to build wealth. We've been in this country for how long? Mm -hmm. And, you know, even educated people still the first in their family maybe to go to college, the first in their family to own a business, the first in their family to have expendable income. So you're starting from scratch. You're starting from the ground floor trying to figure this out. And you're trying to generate this wealth and build this wealth all while still having to have a life. And a lot of times still having to support and help other family members at the same time. So Mm -hmm. it's just like, barrier after barrier after barrier when you're just trying to literally figure out how can I as a person the first in my generation or the first in my family to even think of the future or building wealth for future generations so Mm -hmm. this really kind of starts to open that door so that people can navigate their way through figuring out this whole process because it is systematically built to exclude certain people. They just passed a bill for, um, I think, World War II uh, GI veterans that were supposed to get a part of the GI Bill for education and for home ownership. They mm-hmm. are just now from World War II, I think. Don't quote me, but um, Google it. It's on, it's on the, they just, Congress just passed a bill to pay back those Black family members of those war veterans because they were promised if you go to war and fight for this country, you will get money for homes, which is back then was the number one form of wealth building. Still mm-hmm. is today, but back then even more so. Um, education, you know, to go to college. People, you mentioned college, uh, uh, college loan debt. So they are now just in 2021 mm-hmm. going back to bring up the folks who should have had this already. So you're thinking, what, 50 years of not getting the access to the resources that you were promised, that's 50 years in growth and potential just lost because this country has systematically denied Black folks their just due. Yep. So again, all that to say, you know, uh, apps like Stackwell, uh, you you see a lot of uh, black owned banks starting to pop up for the big Greenwood, uh, One United, um, a lot of online banks. You know, uh, there is something to be said to businesses, specifically financial businesses that cater to the black community because the odds have been stacked against us for so long. And like Nika mentioned, there are first generation folks who are just starting to figure out how to build wealth, but there are a lot of us who are not. So, you know, um, products, companies, businesses like Stackwell, uh, definitely looking forward to see if they can, again, this is all new. Um, these are all, this all information we, you know, found through our investigation. So, um, I can't <laughs> vouch for it hundred percent, but again, do your research it, on yeah, your own, do your research. Your right. We're bringing uh, the information to you to do your own research and make the own decisions that are best for you. Exactly. You know, but, we're, but, all but that I'm encouraged say, by it. <laughs> right. Encouraged by it. And we want to see it do well. So again, if you're interested, you want to check it out, go to stackwellcapital.com. Like you said, they've got a, a um, a, you know, early adopter, um, list that you can sign up for. So when the product actually launches, uh, definitely check it out. I will be checking it out because again, I got some family members I need to share this with (laughs) (laughs) so they can, so they can get out of my pockets. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) all right. So, uh, moving along, we're going to go into the hookup. Um, I thought this was pretty cool. You know, it's not really a, a useful tip. It's just a pretty cool thing that you can do with a memoji for your Mac. 
So basically, you know, um, I'm going to put up a uh, little video that I made. But basically, for those listening uh, on the podcast, basically what you can do is uh, you can add your emoji or create a emoji in on your Mac and actually use that emoji as your avatar. And when you are logging into your Mac, you have to enter your password. The emoji will actually uh, animate. And based on, like, say, if you enter your wrong password, it'll kind of do a little funny animation. And if you log in, it'll give you a different type of animation. So I just thought that was something, a little cool trick that I found. And like I mentioned, for uh, the people watching us, uh, whether it be live on the stream or watching us on replay on YouTube, uh, I'm going to put this little video that I put together that kind of shows you what the animation does. So and we'll put the link in the show notes too for our audio listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do, we'll definitely put a link in the show notes so you can actually watch the video. So yo, this is Terrence Gaines, AKA brother tech. And I'm back with another video. I thought this was a cool little trick. If you want to utilize your memoji to give you a special response when you're entering your password on your Mac. So I'm going to show you how to turn that emoji on and I'm going to show you what it looks like when you actually use your password to enter your Mac and see the responses from your emoji. So first thing we got to do is actually turn it on. So if you go to system preferences, you go over to iCloud and you go over to your um, avatar, click edit. Make sure you turn on the emoji. If you haven't created one, you can do so. Once you've created one, you can actually select it. You click save. Once you're done, now I'm gonna show you what it looks like when you actually enter your password to see the responses from the emoji. So basically what I'm doing right now is enter my password and my little avatar is like watching me. And then when I enter the password wrong, he kind of shakes his head and kind of gives me this look <laughs> that I'm entering the password wrong. So <laughs> that was my little, that was my little trick. Wasn't too much to it, but I thought that was pretty cool, you know, because most people use, most people use emojis for, um, they use them for uh, their iPhones and their iPads, you know, to where if you're, you know, using text messages, you can put in your emoji to, you know, express or emote some sort of expression, but now you can do it on your Mac. And I just thought that was a cool way that they utilized again, not very useful. I just thought that was pretty cool. So <laughs> that is my tip for the week. And like I mentioned, other than that, I think we are done for this week. Again, we want to thank all of our uh, listeners, all of our viewers. Uh, we want to thank you for your support. Uh, one of the main ways you can support us is if you download, rate, and review our podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you want to reach out to us on social media, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SnobOSCast. Uh, you can watch us on YouTube. You can find us at SnobOSCast. And if you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to like, subscribe, comment, share the video on social media. Uh, you can definitely leave comments and suggestions if you go to our website, SnobOSCast.com. Or you can shoot us an email at snobboyscast at gmail.com. Also, if you go to our website, we have a link to where you can join our Discord community. That's where we kind of chit-chat throughout the week. I may put up some tips, some news. We may have conversations. Like the last thing I put in there, uh, looking talking about the um, Spider-Man trailer that just dropped earlier this week. So if you want to get a part of that community, definitely do that. Uh, one of the ways you really can support us is to support us financially. Uh, if you go to patreon.com forward slash snobboscast, we have a couple tiers. We got a couple ways that you can support us financially, whether it be in just giving us, you know, $3 a month and you get access to the show early. Or if you give us $5 a month, you get a whole bunch of other stuff access to the show, access to live content, access to our audio feed, and a special community within a community in Discord. Um, if you don't want to do a monthly subscription, you can just give us like a love offering, a one-time thing, or a tip jar. We kind of talked about it earlier in the show. We have our own tip jar. If you go to paypal.me forward slash snobos, you know, you can uh, give us a little love offering. And then other than that, um, I think that is it for this week. Uh, like I mentioned in the pre-show, uh, next week we'll probably uh, record a little bit earlier because I know it's, it's turkey day. And I know you 
the normal time when we uh, 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 publish a show on Friday, you may be incapacitated. <laughs> so we're going to make sure we get you next week's show early. Uh, until then, we are out. Peace. Bye, everybody. Bye.